What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without co-host Andy Bailey, who continues to be holed up studying for something he claims is called law school midterms. As we continue our season preview series, though, I am happy to be joined by Blake Murphy, who is the managing editor of Raptors Republic. Uh, He writes for the Raptors also at the athletic and vice sports he's a very busy guy so i'm i'm excited that he took some time out of his day to come talk some uh raps with us how are you doing today blake good man how are you i'm spectacular uh we just said this before we hopped on i'm i'm ready for the regular season to start as we record this we're like we're close we are so close yeah it's uh you know five games doesn't sound like a lot especially coming from eight games but when you get down to you know when when hi i'm rick store director from the mill valley safeway Our pick four sales back with over 100 items to choose from. It's simple. Mix and match any four participating items. That's right, any four. They don't have to be the same, so mix and match away. Here's a few to choose from. Lean Cuisine and Stouffer's Simple Dishes or Signature Classics Entrees, 6 to 13 ounce selected varieties, only $1.77, and Kellogg's Cereal 10 to 12 ounce, $1.69 each. When you buy four, look for the red tags in store. This is Rick from the Mill Valley Safeway, and we'll see you soon. When the Raptors, for example, have already rested most of their key players at least one preseason game and I'm looking at the preseason finale tonight and being like oh man maybe they should get Serge Ibaka a night off uh (laughs) you know there's one thing building chemistry is one thing but just getting to the regular season and getting things going is uh you know that let's go look I'm just saying when whenever a team signs Trey Burke like that's just that should be the signal that the NBA preseason is over yeah the biggest mistake that's going to be made has been made in the preseason let's uh Let's get on with the 31% shooting from the floor. Let's go, Trey Burke. <laughs> um, you know, we could make this a Trey Burke podcast, too, if we wanted, but uh, the Raptors, fascinating team because I think that they are more divisive than usual after the offseason that they had. And so kind of as a launching point, like we know they're a good team. We know that they would have had more wins if Kyle Lowry wasn't injured last year. 
but you undergo undergo some key personnel changes to duck the luxury tax at the same time you made some good moves uh, cj miles is people underrate the heck out of cj miles uh so i'm just as that kind of launching point i'm wondering what your impression was of their offseason as a whole yeah i thought it was fine it was it was more or less in line with what i had expected i was you know i would have understood if uh, they had taken a couple steps back and tried to put kick the can down the line a little bit uh, but with so many teams doing the same in the east I'm not even sure the Raptors could have got bad enough quickly enough uh, so staying the course with this core uh, especially when Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka were willing to sign on three-year deals if you had told me at the outside of the offseason those guys would sign for three years each uh, you know there's not a there's not really a price I wouldn't have been okay with uh, because that takes out, you know, all of the the downside at the back end for Lowry and most of uh, the or the uh, the decline downside for Ibaka. We hope. Um, so it, it was, yeah, it was more or less straight as straight as I expected at that point. Um, you know, paying two picks to unload Damari Carroll is difficult. Trading away Corey Joseph in what essentially amounted to a sign and trade for C.J. Miles is difficult. But these are the when you're a non tax team because you're not a non-title contender these are kind of the decisions in the middle of the roster you have to make if you're going to pay your top guys so uh cj miles pretty nice you know consolation prize for a team that only had the mid-level to play with he's going to be a, a really nice fit whether that's with the starters or off the bench and then you know investing in your young guys is risky but kind of necessary at this point because they need to figure out who can be a supplement to this lowry DeRozan Ibaka core anyway yeah absolutely and uh I agree with everything you said. I find myself like lower than I want to be on the Raptors, but like you make those points and this is, they're in that second tier of really good teams. Like that's the financial decisions you have to make. And if you're going to say, yeah, they they lost these guys and I'm a big Patrick Patterson fan. Uh, I thought PJ Tucker would be good for them long-term and, Corey Joseph, of course, one of the best backup point guards in the league. But like you look at what they were trying to do and then relative what they were still able to accomplish with this roster. And the Kyle Lowry deal is, as you said, big to me. You get three years. That's not going to be like if you have a problem paying Kyle Lowry $30 million for the next three years. I, I don't I'm just going to assume you didn't watch Kyle Lowry play since he's yeah. been in Toronto. Like he's there's be- a lot. There's a lot of you didn't watch Kyle Lowry play that goes on around the NBA, though. <laughs> That's a that's a popular stance is the uh, you know Lowry's not as good as DeRozan or Lowry's not a top whatever point guard somehow at 31 still slept on a little bit and he's gonna be 34 at the end of that deal um, yeah it's like that that's fine and you know he doesn't have as even though he played he's played a ton of minutes for the Raptors like there was that first like. I don't know, three or four years of his career, like he didn't even sniff like 25 minutes per game, really. So you have that extra cushion um, to work with. And I'm of the mind that, as particularly this year, um, when you're looking at, you know, he, he's 31, but looking at where he is and relative to what he did last season, what's happened in the East with that exodus of talent, he has a strong case to be the best guard, bar none, in the Eastern Conference, and this presumes that people know that we can't qualify Giannis Antetokounmpo as anything. But, like, Jimmy right. Butler was a, basically a three last year, and he left anyway. Um, you're looking at Isaiah Thomas being injured. I would say the only competition right now to Kyle Lowry directly would be John Wall in the best guard in the East Department. I'm curious to know where you kind of fall on that, especially now. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. And Lowry, in terms of how he's going to age, the one skill that he has – um, that is elite and, and ages pretty gracefully is shooting. He has yeah. range like crazy. And as the Raptors shift some more and more ball handling duties to DeMar DeRozan, 
Uh, and as Lowry continues to play, you know, those in those hybrid uh, starter bench units with another point guard, you know, he's going to get they, they've already been able to over the last couple of years buy him some minutes where he's off the ball a lot more. Um, so even though he still plays a ton of minutes in a breakneck style and draws way too many charges in preseason games from <laughs> opposing big men, um, you know, there's a hope that he'll age at least reasonably well, given that that shooting is his primary asset. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you with you on most of that with Lowry. In terms of the East hierarchy, I know there are people who would put Kyrie Irving ahead of him. And because of the flair to the game and the kind of singular shot making and shot creating ability, I get that. But yeah, I'd have it, you know, Wall and Lowry in some order, one, two, in terms of East guards. It makes people uncomfortable when you have that conversation because I, I caught a bunch of shit on Twitter during the regular season because I just did. It was like I, I did an average of the catch all metrics rankings and Lowry just slaughtered every single guard in the East. And we're talking about when. Uh, Isaiah Thomas was still there because his one of the most underrated aspects of his game is his defense because he has a little bit and I'll probably just he seems to have a little bit of so many different players in him and that'll probably become my running theme with him throughout this podcast but he has that like Chris Paul level like maniacal effort to him on the defensive end I don't think people recognize and the other thing is even if you don't necessarily like him on defense because he can be a little undersized at times, he has a little bit of the Stephen Curry uh, magnetic pull to him too. Just by being on the floor, he makes his teammates so much better because of all that extra space he creates, not necessarily as a ball handler, not even as a shooter, but just as that decoy, as that inherent threat. And you have that pull, and yes, I'm not saying he's better than Stephen Curry, but to have that, I think that contributes to why those uh Lowry plus bench units these past couple years have been so effective because he makes everyone around him better just by being on the floor even when he's not on ball yeah it's funny I I think back to I I got to sit down with the Raptors uh VP of basketball strategy and research Keith Boyarski who um has been in their analytics department since Brian Colangelo kind of introduced the analytics department I think in 2009 and one of the questions I asked him was like do you guys have, like on the analytics side, is there is there a good explanation for why no matter who you put with these Lowry and Bench units, they always succeed? And his explanation was just, Kyle Lowry is really good. <laughs> it's it's sometimes, sometimes it's that simple with these lineup things, especially since that group early in the second and fourth quarters is usually going against bench-heavy units. Kyle Lowry's good, and he makes other players better. Um, I know that there was the popular chart going around in the offseason of uh, all the Warriors' true shooting percentage with and without Steph Curry on the floor. Um, I did something like that midseason last year that showed a couple different Raptors with Kyle Lowry, and it's not as uniform, but you see the same kind of thing. Guys shoot a higher percentage when he's out there, whether that's because of the spacing you mentioned, because he's their best creator of three-point shots for others. Uh, They shot much, much better on three-point attempts assisted by Lowry than assisted by anyone else last year. Um, So he does all these little things. And you mentioned his defense. Um, I I actually thought until games mattered last year, his defense had slid a little bit. And how much of that is actual ability and conservation of self uh, is probably up for debate. But he'll have to be, you know, you look at the Raptors starting lineup and it still has the Rosen and Valanciunas. And even if they improve a bit. Um, you know, it, they need Lowry to be really good defensively for that starting unit to to be effective, especially since Ibaka is going to be at the power forward. And then we don't know. It might be Norman Powell. It might. It sounds like it's probably Norman Powell joining them in the starting lineup. But if it's CJ Miles, then, you know, you're looking at a situation where Lowry is your best defender on the floor. So um, hopefully that ticks back up without a resultant tick in wear and tear. Yeah. 
Um, I and I guess you kind of answered this question already with the Raptors analytics guy, but are you at all worried about how those Lowry plus bench units are going to fare now when the makeup of the reserves is it, it maybe it's not a lot different when you just look at the turnover but in a way like it is like Corey Joseph gone like you know Patrick Patterson's gone as well and I think he was kind of a, a big supercharger in, in some of those lineups so are you concerned at all about how they might fare now um a little bit like the Patterson thing looms pretty large because the Raptors plus minus whenever Lowry and Patterson shared the floor whether it was Lowry and bench or Patterson with the starters or whatever um, was obscene and, and that makes sense because they were your two smartest players, two of your better defenders, and they both had, you know, that kind of gravity as shooters for their positions. Now, looking at it, you can still cobble together what should be a pretty good Lowry and bench unit. If we assume Norman Powell starts, uh, that means C.J. Miles kind of slides into the Terrence Ross role, and, and Ross was in that spot for three and a half seasons or parts of three and a half seasons anyway. Uh, and Miles, as a, from a shooting perspective, is basically a supercharged Ross. He's going to shoot a high volume in the corners and they're going to run, they're going to roll out some of the exact same playbook uh, to free him above the break on, on pin downs and baseline screens and stuff like that. So um, that should be fairly seamless. And then in the Corey Joseph spot, you're going to have DeLon Wright, maybe a little bit of Fred Van Vliet. And if it's right, you know, he's the kind of ball handler who's funky enough and a good enough passer that he'll make Lowry an even bigger threat off the ball. Mm -hmm. And if it's Fred Van Vliet, then you just have a ton of shooting from the guard positions on the court. Um, so you know, the big men are a little bit of a question mark, whether it's going to be Siakam or OG Ananobi or whoever in the um, in the de facto Patterson spot. You know, they're not going to have as much shooting out of that position. They might have a little more speed and be able to push a little more in transition. And if there's one thing I've gotten from the preseason, it's that they definitely want to run with the second unit. They're young. Uh, they're very fast uh, player by player. So I think you'll see those groups at least push the pace. So if they're a little lighter on shooting, um, maybe they'll try to make up for it in that regard. And maybe they'll crash the offensive glass a little bit more too, um, especially if it's Siakam and Pirtle. Those are two guys who are uh, pretty deft on the offensive glass. So uh, they, it might look a little bit different than the Lowry bench units uh, of years past, but they'll figure it out, man. My, my hope is also, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Like it looks like Jakob Pirtle might be in that spot, but the, the pick and roll lob chemistry that Lowry and Lucas Noguera have had in spot minutes over the last couple of years is so much fun. Uh, that I'm kind of hoping Noguera gets some time with that group too. Um, you do not have to defend Lucas Noguera to me. I want him playing over Pirtle and like even Valanciunas at some points when I look at what he does. But I'm very intrigued to the wrap up like that Lowry point. The the CJ Miles, I think I would almost I, I prefer him a little bit in the starting lineup for shooting, but I, I think the prospect of him and Lowry like leading those bench units is just absurd. And he had one of my I think one of my favorite stats last year was of the 198 players to chew through 125 spot-up opportunities, C.J. Miles led all of them in one in points per possession. And that was like on an Indiana Pacers team that wasn't <laughs> that good at generating high-quality looks. And now you put him, you know, we criticize the Raptors' ball movement sometimes and how their offense bogs down in the playoffs. Their offense is elite in the regular season. And you put him beside Lowry, and if there are times, I'm sure there will be when he plays with Lowry and, and DeRozan, who's become so much better at making decisions out of the pick and roll in the past few years, how does he not shoot a zillion percent from beyond the arc? And to leverage that type of a weapon who a guy, sometimes he gets overpowered on the defensive end, but you show me another six foot six inch basically shooting guard who does defend up to power forwards or at least tries to. Yeah, exactly. And my, so I coming into camp, I probably leaned 60 40 towards starting miles over Powell. Um, part of that being that uh, part of that being the spacing, like uh, Nick Scaria's 
work with like spacing rating uh, estimates has the starting lineup with Miles at like 85th percentile, which is something the Raptors like. I, I can only imagine if you give Lowry and DeRozan that much more space that they've they haven't had because in the in the last couple of years, you know, it's been Powell on spot duty or James Johnson on spot duty or Damari Carroll who. While he is still, you know, somewhat of a shooting threat, doesn't have the kind of pull that Miles has. Um, that's pretty exciting. And you mentioned, you know, the Raptors' ball movement. And yeah, they they haven't been a high volume three point team. They they're, you know, at the bottom of the league in assists all the time. They still managed to get, you know, the corpse of Damari Carroll six three point attempts per thirty six minutes over the last two years. And with CJ Miles being a better shooter and also having an even quicker trigger, um, and, and his confidence isn't going to wane. That's for sure. Uh, I, I think he'll, you know, he's going to shoot a high, high volume, and that's going to that's going to have a positive impact. Whether it's with the bench unit helping provide that lethal spacing with Lowry, or whether it's with the starters in kind of that like fifth usage role, um, you know, there's a, there's obviously a bit of a defense trade off. Miles probably tap, tops out around average defensively, and Powell has a little more upside. But uh, I'm with you. Yeah, I would lean Miles starting a little bit, but I think his shooting is going to be. So important either way, and I think he's going to be a, a member of their closing units probably uh, for that reason. Uh, I hope everyone just knew that we were going to just go so in depth on the Raptors bench right off the bat. I'm, I'm just yeah. totally love, I'm totally loving this. Um, but and- look, man, La- Lowry, DeRozan. Ibaka and Valanciunas are all pretty known quantities, right? Right. The Ibaka, I actually find him really interesting now, and we're, we're gonna have to get him a little bit later. But the, I, there was something while you were talking that I just kind of thought about, and I'm again, I'm ra- I'm one of the people who was just a little uneasy about the Raptors' offseason. Like I think their decisions were easy to justify, but they, there's just something about them. Like I just don't know if they're versatile enough on paper, and their front court rotation seems a little weird. But and I love Corey Joseph, but if you actually kind of look at it this way, they gave up Corey Joseph and Damari Carroll, and then let's say a late first-round pick, and then that second-rounder, and none of those players, even those picks right now, obviously, I wouldn't put them as a top 100 player in the NBA, and you got one in C.J. Miles. And I'm just saying this because I did a top 100 ranking recently for BR, and if you kind of look at it in that context, like you have that valued contributor now um, on coming off the bench or even if he's in the starting lineup, and I'm also interested to see then if he helps and this might be a great segue into the next part of, of well, it's, it's about DeMar DeRozan, but it's also related to the bench. He's going to see time at point guard, basically. Uh, as Dwayne Casey said, like, last summer, and we know he's run more pick and rolls, and you, lo- you lose Joseph. Yes, you can use uh, Dellen Wright, but you'll probably, there maybe there are units where he's, DeMar DeRozan's basically the lead guard out there, and now you have that extra really sweet shooting weapon instead of, let's, a DeMari Carroll who has cinder blocks for feet now, if, <laughs> if you're watching him. Uh, I'm interested to see if he helps in, because DeRozan is... Uh, as I said, I think the Raptors are a little divisive, and DeMar DeRozan is probably the most divisive player in the NBA right now. He is so fun to watch. Everyone cites, including myself, the the on-off numbers. The the thing that's always, I don't, it's more fascinated me than troubled me. He's so good out of the pick and roll now, and he just bends defenses even though he doesn't have this really sweet jumper. I've never understood why the units that the Raptors run out without uh, Corey Joseph and Kyle Lowry these past two years, and they have DeRozan kind of as that lead ball handler. Why they really just haven't fared better? And I'm wondering if you can, you know, if you can just provide any more more nuance to that, or maybe you think like, is this the year where we're really going to see those those numbers kind of turn around? Yeah, you hope that they turn around for sure. And, and Demar is going to make strides. Like you've already, I don't know how much of the Raptors preseason you've caught, but um, he's you know he's slowly grown as a passer over the years. But passing out of the pick and roll has been a bit of a hang up. His assist percentage in the preseason, and again, all preseason caveats apply. 
but his assist percentage is 42%, which is like double his previous right. career high. So if he looks to pass even a little bit more out of those situations, uh, particularly him and Jonas Valanciunas have never really had much of a chemistry. Um, so in, in that starting group, when the ball's in his hands, uh, I think you're gonna I think you're gonna see some improvement there. Um, in terms of him in the bench unit, part of the issue I think has been that Lowry provides so much spacing that DeRozan can't provide in that same role. Like like if you in lineups that were Lowry and bench, and then you go DeRozan and bench, well that shifts Corey Joseph either to the nominal point guard with Demar spotting up or Demar as the point guard, and Corey Joseph is much less of a threat than Kyle Lowry. Uh, and then, you know, Patrick Patterson is sometimes your only shooter in those bench units that contain DeRozan. And then DeRozan's also not as good as Lowry defensively. So those groups kind of have thrived off of pushing the pace a little bit and forcing a lot of opponent turnovers. And DeRozan can't help quite as much like that. Um, it's just a, a little bit more of a fit issue. Now, look at, looking ahead to this year, you know, whether you think they'll fare a little better depends at least a little bit on what you think of DeLon Wright's uh, progress as a shooter. Because, you know, if you look and it's Wright, DeRozan, Miles, Siakam, Pirtle, say, or, or Ananobi, Pirtle, you know, there's not a lot of shooting in those groups again. So CJ Miles might help uh, when DeRozan has the ball in his hands and he's going to have the ball in his hands plenty. Um, and maybe Fred Van Vliet in those units if they if they go super downsize and DeRozan's kind of at the three, um, you'll you'll get some extra spacing there. But that'll... That'll probably be a work in process, uh, work in progress as the season rolls along. And we haven't even seen a DeRozan bench unit yet in the preseason. So it's hard to tell exactly how his improvements will have an impact there. But, you know, DeRozan is a he's a I, I know what the data says and I know um, that he's divisive. And I know that there are some limitations to his game. And like for a, t a whole team, he's kind of the stylistic bottleneck that they face on offense. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm. You know, I'm past the point of ever betting against DeMar DeRozan doing coming back and being better or adding a facet to his game. And I think I think playmaking is going to be a big one uh, for him this year. So, you know, hopefully that that helps lift those bench units. I still don't think they'll be as effective as Lowry and bench units. Uh, and the one thing that might help this year is their starting lineup should be actually good for the first time. Uh, so so maybe that'll matter less. Um, yeah, it was, and it's not even for me, it's not like the defensive numbers. We know he's not like the most engaged defender, especially when he's not on the ball, but it was just the, the offensive splits where the Raptors were kind of mediocre, but that probably says more about the personnel. You talk about the spacing, um, the playmaking thing will be interesting because you do notice when you watched him over the, and I, I think there's been, you know, yeah, you say he needs to improve playmaking out of the pick and roll or passing, and I would agree, but he's also just been so much better in the pick and roll in general with his hesitations <clears> and the way he makes shots. Uh, but if he's, you know, he shot on 75% of his pick and roll possessions last year. I mean, that number's, it's not astronomical for someone who's considered a lead ball handler, but if you trade out some more passes and it, it forces defenses to change the way they defend you, maybe that offensive rating when you're the solo guy comes up because that's just what's always fascinated me is because DeMar DeRozan is a good, great offensive player. Like that's, if you want to talk about in the context of overall, whatever, his value to a team because of what happens on defense or sometimes with the spacing, fine. But DeMar DeRozan in a vacuum is a very good offensive player. And to see what he's able to do now as that pick and roll scorer, as a scorer in general, and then to have those wonky splits when you're, when you're the lone wolf with the ball, that's it. I've found it inexplicable. Like I, you did a great job outlining it, but I try and think about it so much and I just can't find like, I, I'm, I want like a definitive explanation and it's probably impossible to find one. Yeah, it's it's probably is impossible, and you kind of just have to look for the tweets and look for any you know steps forward that that those groups can take. And 
you know, it's as with all things, it's probably a mix of things in terms of, you know, personnel, uh, two way play, uh, the style of play when DeMar, when DeRozan's the lead ball handler and, and Kyle Lowry's not on the floor. Uh, it's probably a combination of all of those things. And, you know, th- uh, on the one hand, that makes it more encouraging because there are a number of ways those groups could improve. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a little discouraging because they still have so many ways that they could conceivably get better. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm optim- I'm pretty optimistic about DeRozan coming into this year. Uh, in talking to him a little bit, like it sounds like, you know, he's always been a, a tireless worker, and obviously his off-season workouts are the stuff of legend around the NBA at this yeah. point. But a lot of it has, you know, historically been about, you know, I'm going to improve my footwork. I'm going to improve the way that I get to the rim. I'm going to suddenly be one of the most jacked wings because now no one, no one can knock me off the ball when I'm trying to finish around the rim. Um, things like that. And that's not to say they're, they're selfish progressions, but you can only do so much on your own. Right. Um, so the playmaking is kind of something that, you know, it, it's a little tougher because you need the reps to get that going and you need, you know, that stuff you have to pick up with more playing time and more awareness and stuff. So him, him shifting his focus that way. And he's talked a lot more than I can remember hearing him talk about kind of using the attention that he draws and how good he is to make others better. And it sounds like, you know, that's cliched stuff that leaders say all the time. But, you know, DeRozan, because generally he hasn't talked that way a ton, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting to hear him speak that way. And it's interesting to see him, you know, come out of the gate and make a very clear, concerted effort to be more of a playmaker. So um, obviously we won't know until we're 15, 20 games in the season. I think the big thing with a lot of the Raptors changes is fans are just going to be waiting for them to regress back to what they've been the last three or four years. Um, so, you know, hopefully these changes are, are pretty sticky. I mean, if he's going to make, and I didn't really, you're, this is information to me that he hadn't necessarily made passing as big of a focus as it is now for him. He averaged career, like he tied his he set a career high in 2015, 2016 in assists per 36 minutes and then matched that number. It was four, which it's not, it's not an unspectacular number, but you're talking about a two guard whose primary role is to score. And now if he's actually going to make it a focus and you see the attention, as you say, he draws, and it's just you, – you can see the way he warps defenses, like with just his mix of hesitations. And, you know, we make fun of the mid-range shots sometimes, but this is a guy who's going to pull up and fade away out of, out of the pick and roll. And it's, 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 it's unpredictable to defend. And if now all of a sudden he's making, like creating shots for others or using that attention to get looks for others, that's – I would have to believe, and again, I, I would count myself as probably a DeMar DeRozan skeptic, but I would have to believe that this season is the definitive test on where his offensive value really is. And if that's what's about to happen, then there's not even an argument there. Like, this might be the year uh, that he just puts it to bed because I'm I'm amazed that he hasn't made, like, I, I just didn't know that. And thinking about it, if you're going to give me a DeMar DeRozan who's just zeroing in on creating for others now or using that attention— I'm I I don't know you can't defend that like if that hasn't been a focus yeah to and this I point. I don't mean I don't mean to say that like he wasn't worried about passing in the past no, you his can numbers see, show that he was like he was passing yeah he so that's started why off so... like at Wiggins level of assists and is now like a safe bet for three and a half four a game um so I I don't mean to say that like he hasn't tried to get better at it it's just like this is the most I've heard him talk about it coming into a camp um and like every time you you ask him about the offseason workouts or what's going to be different this year um you know usually it's not usually the the playmaking and making others better that's been the first thing that comes up so um i'm i'm pretty optimistic on that front i'm more optimistic on that front and i actually think it's probably more important to the team than any you know step forward in his three point percentage um i agree with you there and i you've 
I, I think you've made me more so a DeMar DeRozan believer, where I kind of just hedged on a line. You really just uh, look, man. So <laughs> from a from like a personal level, uh, the first piece I ever wrote for Raptors Republic was after the draft when they selected DeMar DeRozan. So I kind of like started at the exact same time as DeMar DeRozan. So you know, I my it's been interesting to like keep writing as he does these different things, and for me to go through phases where like. You know, at first, I didn't necessarily grasp that, you know, scoring wasn't the, like, the the trade-off between scoring efficiently and uh, analytic efficiency and stuff like that. And then hit a point where, you know, analytics was all I looked at for a little while and, and kind of lost some of the context there. And my hope is just that as DeMar DeRozan grows each year, like, hopefully that's a sign that, you know, we can all keep growing year to year <laughs> as we get into our late 20s or early 30s and we're, you know, nine, nine years in or whatever. So, you know, the, the faith in DeMar is kind of also just like me hoping that, you know, what it signals about the basketball world as a bigger thing. It's uh, uh, selfishly. I just want I want him to keep progressing. Well, and I mean, it's I get that. But like, you know, I'm going to I'm so far removed from the situation. And I just I'm I've begun probably over the last I would say definitely since 2015, 2016, like I've, I've tried to look for reasons to not, you know, to be like, oh, DeMar DeRozan is just, he's not a very good, like he's not a very valuable player. Like I've started where it was like I either accepted what people were saying or what I was seeing or seeing with the data. I, I've begun to really just look for reasons and dig into, and then you watch him more. And I think you have a, a finer appreciation for his game than no matter whether you're close to the team or him or whether you're just so far removed from it, because he's, he's more fun to watch than Kyrie Irving for me, which would be a good like comparison. We talk about Kyrie Irving's performances when he played without LeBron James during those years. Uh, like DeMar DeRozan looks like a very good basketball player. I'm not saying Kyrie Irving's not, but I, I derive a more distinct joy from watching DeMar DeRozan. And, and it's made me uh, maybe not a believer all the time, but it's made me want to be a believer. And perhaps that says a lot about a shifting conversation. Yeah. And he's like, like, I get that sometimes the mid range isn't the most aesthetically pleasing and the Raptors offense hasn't been the best to watch, but he's fairly unique as an individual offensive player in the NBA. And like his footwork is astounding. And some of the shots that he hits, um, I, I definitely understand debate around DeMar DeRozan's value in, in general. For sure. But the fact that people don't enjoy watching DeMar DeRozan play is crazy to me. Right. I mean, if if we're going to be like technical, it's probably less enjoyable to watch Kyle Lowry than it is DeMar DeRozan. Like when we're looking at just aesthetics. Yeah. I mean, look, I enjoy a good pull up three in transition. Well, but... I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, because of like time freezes when Demar Derozan is coming like around a screen or out of the pick. Like, I don't like we can call that hesitation or like he's just very patient. Like, I, it's like I'm watching it in slow motion because he's just so fluid and smart out of it. I I just and maybe that's more of you know we can consider like you and I love basketball like and we're gonna care about it more. So maybe that's nuance others wouldn't appreciate. But it, it really does feel like time freezes when he's in those situations. Yeah, it's novel, right? The way he scores and the way they get him the ball and stuff. It's not, you know, the I don't think the NBA is getting as mono stylistic as some people fear necessarily, but like he's kind of the counter to that and and he's fairly unique and I don't know, the unique novel players are always going to be super interesting to watch to me anyway. Um, uh, mono stylistic needs to become the, the term of the podcast. I love that. So thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, another player who I think is becoming on the Raptors, I wouldn't say divisive, but I think people look at him now and say, well, we know who he is and he's just not going to get any better is Serge Ibaka. And one of the things, and this is where the off season 
kind of gets hard for me for them, or maybe this is where I don't like it. I've in when I look at some of the other players in their front court and how well you know Siaka might be an offensive liability at times, but he's a pretty good defensive switcher. And you have Lucas Nogueira and Valanciunas. You're still paying him. I did question whether the Raptors might have done better removing what they gave up to get Ibaka. Would it have made more sense to sign and keep P.J. Tucker and Patrick Patterson as opposed to Ibaka? Just assuming, you know, they could have probably made the money work in in the same vein where you were ducking the luxury tax. But even if we remove that from the equation, just looking at what those two bring and kind of the defensive versatility that I think Ibaka lacks now. His rim protecting has been all over the place the past couple years. I think he's seen a lot of changes even during his last year with Oklahoma City and then you go to Orlando and they were just a crap show um, and, and then you come to the Raptors so maybe that'll help him settle in but I don't view him as this guy who's going to be able to jump out and you know disrupt these pick and rolls or, or defend in space really and when you combine that with the fact that he can't really give you more on offense. He's never going to put the ball on the floor. He's always he's not unwilling to make an extra pass, but he just doesn't. Maybe because he's so open all the time, and his offensive role isn't a problem. So, like you have Kyle Lowry right. and Demar Derozan, he shouldn't be putting the ball on the floor. So, I, I want to make that clear. But his his defensive value now kind of bothers me a little bit, especially when he's going to play. We can assume a lion's share of his minutes at the four. Yeah, if you're asking me, you know, would I have rather had Tucker and Patterson at a combined, you know, eighteen million? Versus Ibaka, yeah, I would have. Um, the so reality, though, that is that was my long-winded question. So sorry yeah, about burying it, burying the lead there. That was my yeah, question. The the issue there is that like the Raptors offered Tucker three thirty-three, and he took four thirty-two with Houston. There's just like you can't trump Chris Paul and James right. Harden recruiting you, I guess. And then the Patterson relationship, um, you know, it was pretty strained by the end of the year. So I don't know if that if those if that option set was on the table for them. I do share some of your concerns about Ibaka at the four defensively. I think offensively, you know, we haven't really seen him and Kyle Lowry play together. I think they've played like 200 minutes together. Um, so how these starters are going to fit offensively, we don't really know. But I'm pretty confident it'll work out. He's, you know, he's got a quick trigger on threes. So shoot them at a, at a pretty decent clip if the last couple of years are any indication. Um, and, you know, he's been... From what it sounds like in camp, he's been the slowest of the bigs to kind of get the put the ball on the floor and then make the pass uh, that they want to introduce into the offense. But he's, you know, he's good in his role. Defensively, I share some of your concerns. He did come in a little lighter um, than he than he was last year. I think he said 10 pounds, uh, but he also looked pretty bad in his first three preseason games before having a, a really good game on Tuesday. Uh, so yeah, it, he's not, you know, he's no longer an ideal fit necessarily because he's probably better cast at center or if you want to flip that i know some people have taken to saying that he's rather than he's a good fit at center he's not a good fit at power forward um so depending on where your optimism about abaka lies you could word those either way um you know he's he's probably only going to see closing minutes at center here because the raptors kept valanchunas and have pertle and nogara who are useful pieces and they're a little thinner at the four uh, but you know they yeah, Tucker and Patterson would be, you know, that would make them more versatile and it would give you an extra piece and help the depth and things like that. But if those if those options weren't there, um, I don't think, you know, $20 million for Ibaka is too bad an overpay. And I don't think he's going to decline too precipitously over over these next couple of years. Uh, maybe that's, that's me hoping more than analyzing. Uh, but I think, I, I think it's going to be fine. Like, I don't think he's the, the quote-unquote third star the Raptors have been looking for for so long. Um, I think they, you know, it sucks that they didn't end up being able to trade for Millsap when Atlanta took him off the market last year, uh, if they would have even had the pieces. But Ibaka's, Ibaka's a fine piece, and he's a nice offensive fit, at least. Uh, and 
if he ever and uh, we you know we talk about this you're never going to give him post-ups nor should you just look at the people that are on your team around him yeah. but if he can add that pump and put the ball on the floor or you know that he maybe he will pass up a shot like that's going to open up a ton for the for the Raptors offense I'm interested to see if he does develop that because I know that that seemed to be as soon as last season ended like they talked about like those are the types of changes uh, or hinted at the types of changes they wanted to make to their offense and he'll be even if he doesn't change it's like you said he's still a good fit or great good to great fit on offense for this team and he's an interesting case study because I feel as if we talk about Ibaka like he's a million years old and he's been around for eight years he's only 28 years old but what is actually a little bit more polarizing with him is he seems to have peaked and we thought a lot of that had to do with he couldn't get anything more in Oklahoma City when you just look at the personnel that was around him. And maybe he still can do more, but if he holds steady, that like that's fine. This is the Raptors or the 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 Magic would have needed him to have made that leap. The Thunder, if they kept him in the post Kevin Durant era, would have needed him to make that leap. But the Raptors just need essentially the player they traded for. With you hope you can get by with him more uh, at the four on defense. And I'm my my question now would be they're gonna. Do you think they're going to be committed? to finding him at least semi-ample time at the five? Because I think when you look at the roster, uh, my favorite lineup for them is Lowry, DeMar DeRozan, CJ Miles, Norman Powell, Serge Ibaka. Yeah, that's what I figure will be the closing lineup out of the gate. But I don't think, you know, more than the the five or six minutes towards the end of games, uh, and and even then only games where Valanciunas can't be on the floor, because Valanciunas, everyone, like the whole team is raving about how, and, and the preseason games show it, he's looked phenomenal. Um, and again, all preseason caveats, and we've seen glimpses of potential break, quote unquote, breakouts from Valanciunas before. But he at least looks good for now until until he doesn't, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I, I think they'll they'll get some minutes like that. They'll probably prefer to close a little smaller because most teams will will close a little smaller, and it'll make them a little rangier on defense. Uh, but I don't think you're gonna see like I don't think the rotation is gonna be set up so that Ibaka is getting you know 12 of his 32 minutes at the center position to keep him happy. He sounds like he approached his offseason uh, believing he'd be playing the four more. They have way more depth at, at, at the center position than the forward positions. I'll say. Um, yeah, so I don't I don't think, uh, you know, I think he'll see some time there, but not, not significant. The lineup you mentioned, though, um, that's probably what I think will close out of the gate. And you might see different iterations where, you know, if they want another ball handler, maybe DeLon Wright factors in, or if they... They want a little more size or later in the year, maybe OG and an OB factors in a guy they're really high on. But, you know, you can't really rely on rookies to be good out of the gate. Um, but, yeah, that's probably that's probably the five they close with. Like if, if we're looking late in a game in the opener on the 19th, that's probably the group that's out there. That kind of bums me out that he won't get more time at center just just to watch it. But I get, players, maybe if you ask, if someone asks him this. The players seem to like go against that. We know Carmelo Anthony and Paul George never really wanted to play the four. Maybe Ibaka's kind of the same way. Like maybe he just no. He actually but... oh, he really? said at the end of last year that he he preferred playing center, and I think a lot of that is because you know he's not quite the rim protector he is he was anymore from mm-hmm. the power forward position. Uh, but you you look at it too, and like when he's been at the center, he hasn't been a particularly great rebounder at that spot. And Valanciunas is so good in that area and. You know, again, the biggest thing is the, is the way the depth chart looks. It doesn't make sense to force Ibaka center minutes when you, you have some good center depth. And uh, maybe that changes as the season goes along. If Siakam or Ananobi or whoever uh, progress and are able to fill some of that power forward time. Uh, but it sounds as if, you know, the plan is Ibaka is going to spend the bulk of his time at, at power forward outside of 
the last few minutes of games when they need a, a defensive supercharge. Who's going to get screwed the most in that four or five rotation? Is it gonna is it gonna be Nagara? It's and the Raptors seem like and I if you look so Abaka, Siakam, Valanciunas, Pirtle, and Nagara like those are six guys that are, are seem like the real NBA players and it would imply that the Raptors are primed for a midseason trade but no team in the NBA is really making big for wing trades anymore and I think there's a better than good chance that they end up not moving any of these guys uh, they're obviously not going to move Ibaka but just to you know the the residual talent and I'm wondering how do they how do you think they're going to kind of make sense of, of that rotation then? Because it's everyone brings, there's not really a complete big in this bunch. They bring something different. Like, you know, Nogueira, like he seems like a very good rim runner and he switches better than uh, a lot of their bigs on defense. Siakam's a great switcher. He can't really do much on the offensive end. Um, he would, he's, he's tantalizing to me as a, as a five, but I don't know if he can hold up defensively at the five. Jonas Valanciunas is just, he's very good on the offensive end, but is, is his rim protection going to improve if he has to do more than just hover around the restricted area so I'm, I'm wondering what you how you kind of see this this big man pecking order unfolding this year yeah it's it's a complicated situation right where like Valanciunas Valanciunas is very good in his role I know he's a divisive guy as well but as a you know elite screen setter and high-end rebounder and then you know occasional touches around the, the rim like I think he was in the 95th percentile as a, a scorer as the pick and roll dive man even though they didn't use him a ton that way like he's so good in that role and they're trying to get him more um, multifaceted in the offense. But like you said, the defense and the rim protection is is what's kind of going to be a sticking point to playing time. Um, and all of these guys do do, you know, they do have different strengths and weaknesses, which the thing is, is like other than Abaga and Valanciunas, none of these guys are really assured of playing time. So that kind of gives them the freedom. One, uh, Nogueira, Pirtle, and Siakam are all young. And, and if right. you want to include Ananobi in there, that you know, I don't think it'll be a big deal if they play for four or five games and then they're out of the rotation for a little bit. Um, and then also it gives Dwayne Casey the option to play to, you know, the matchup a little bit. And he's kind of hinted that might be the case with Pirtle and Noguera. Um, if I were to guess which one of these guys probably comes out on the short end, it's probably Noguera. Wow. Um, he's, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> he's an interesting case where I am such a, I'm a very firm believer that Lucas Noguera is a capable NBA rotation big um, but I also understand that because he's so inconsistent because he's dealt with a bunch of nagging injuries uh, because sometimes you know if he goes out and he's a little mistake prone or he hasn't played in a little while you know his body language and his confidence isn't always the best um, so I think he's you know I think he should be their backup center but I also understand why sometimes Dwayne Casey is hesitant to do that uh, and why Jakob Pertl finishing the season last year in that spot might through power of inertia, give him the give him the inside edge this year. I do think um, Lucas Noguera, if he doesn't win that job, has some serious James Johnson potential as a restricted free agent next summer. Um, I think someone's gonna you know make him uh, get him on a pretty low ball offer, and he's gonna be pretty good. Yeah, if he doesn't win that job, he would be he might be the most appealing trade option for them from the bigs. You remove you obviously remove Abaka from that equation, but yeah, you have to give him a new contract. But he just he. If you're not going to be a big who has all this range, you want the potentially high-end rim runner who can swat shots, and he's going to switch a little bit on defense. And he's probably the guy, if you're going to make a big for wing trade, uh, he's probably the guy that could help you get there, and it's going to be difficult to make salaries match. But, you know, I, like I, and I don't know what you would get for him because he's 
going into restricted free agency, as we've both now said. But, you know, you know what would be a fun trade if you just give Lucas Nogueira to the Spurs? And are they going to send back, like, would they give up Brandon Paul or would they give up Kyle Anderson, who's also going to be a restricted free agent? I don't know if Anderson would interest you at all, but that's, like, kind of an extra winger guard there. And then the Spurs could kind of use a Dwayne Denman replacement when you look at how they have no athleticism at the four or five anymore. So the that, idea of Lucas Noguera ending up on the Spurs and just being unbelievable is going to keep me up at night now. Like he's <laughs> he's absolutely going to be good for someone other than the Raptors next year. It's just where do you I and that and that's probably the Raptors issue because I do they need it would make everyone's lives a lot easier if you could make a trade like just consolidate but the the league is there are a lot of talented bigs, but they're just they're everywhere. Like you look, and yeah. there's no there's no team right now that I think you can argue that needs a big. Like maybe the Knicks want a 25th big for their <laughs> roster, but I, like who? Yeah, and even the Nets, like the Nets could probably stand to add a young big at some point. But like they Ooh, also Nogueira have guys. On the Nets, I don't know who you like. Would the Raptors take Rondé? Like the Nets go back and forth. I know for a fact. Yeah, and can, and can the Raptors take on another non-shooter? Yeah, that's, that's if fair. they're gonna add a wing. So. Um, I don't know. I would bet against the trade happening. Noguera makes sense because, you know, he's probably the most superfluous and he makes the most money out of those those young guys. So when you're talking about salary that can come back. Uh, but also, you know, it's, it's the center position and it probably doesn't hurt to have some extra bodies in there. Like Siakam, the team says Siakam's a 4-3, whereas I think he's a 4-5 and then Ibaka can play some minutes at the 5. But you'll need, you look at Noguera each of the last three seasons has started the year as the third string center, really. And in each of the last two, he's ended up playing like a pretty important role for at least a little bit of time. So you'll need three over the course of the season anyway. Like if Valanciunas goes down at, at any point, he misses five or six games, say, you don't want to be starting Serge Ibaka and playing him 30 minutes at center. So um, I think they'd want to keep three three kind of natural centers on the roster anyway. They're really, they are built up to just play matchups. Like if, if there's going to be a team that's going to run dual bigs, you know, you're going to go up against Memphis. Like you can get a lot of Valanciunas, Abaka minutes. Uh, and if you need kind of the more athletic or the, or the longer big at the five, like you can go with Lucas Nogueira. Uh, so and hey, if, I'll say if that, you want to get really weird, the Nogueira-Valanciunas power forward center combination last year was actually pretty good. They would probably destroy the glass would be my guess, right? Because Valanciunas is, to me, he's he's a pretty good rebounder, but like he will he will clobber guys, and that'll just get Lucas Nogueira will get all the uncontested rebounds with Valanciunas on the floor. Yeah, and, and you know, the spacing is a little limited, but Nogueira can hit threes, and he has some nice ball skill. Um, and then, you know, the I don't know, it's not... It's not a great fit, but I think Noguera started six games at power forward last year. And the lineup data, obviously you couldn't do that against smaller, faster teams and really survive. But I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure those lineups were like a pretty noticeable positive in the the 100 or 200 minutes or whatever they ended up playing. And you know where like a a team that that works against? Like if if the Jazz end up like they're going to really just rest on the Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors front court to bring them home. Uh, th- that's you know you can roll out the, that lineup against them and, and see how that goes. So that's like they're again they're built to play matchups and maybe that's the upside to having that sort of front court pileup. Oh, by the way, I, I just looked it up. They so Nogueira and Valanciunas played 171 minutes together last year, plus 11.5 per hundred possessions. Um, that's in that, how many minutes was that? Uh, 171. I mean, that's not insubstantial. Like, yeah, that's, it's... that's 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 actually that's incredible. Yeah, I mean they're built. 
the that might be the upside, like I said, of the pileup is they're built to play matchups. The one thing I I do worry about, and we, we touched upon this a little bit when I asked about the Patterson Tucker question. Patterson was that guy in the front court where you put him next to any other big, right? Whether he was at the and the lineup just worked. And I don't like that bit. Like that guy is just not on the roster right now. I don't think Ibaka is going to be able to take up that mantle. Yeah, that's you know Patterson was such a nice piece, and really. P.J. Tucker, Patterson wasn't playing a ton by the end of the year. P.J. Tucker kind of slid right into that spot where they were using him with, in a bunch of different ways. Um, and, and, you know, you hear about the Rockets now. Like James Herbert of, of CBS Sports had a great piece the other day uh, about Tucker's fit with the Rockets, and he's even playing some center there. Um, so it's so it's really nice to have a guy like that. I don't know. You know, I think they think, at least defensively, Ananobi will be that guy eventually. Uh, but he just turned 20 and he's coming off a torn ACL and, you know, see, they love Siakam's potential as a defensively versatile guy, but none of the, neither of those guys are going to give you that same kind of versatility in the offensive end. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. Like they're built to play matchups, but they're not, you know, I don't think they have the same killer downsized lineup as they might've had last year because Patterson, you know, was such a good fit for those groups and, and Tucker was too. Maybe they do. Maybe Miles and Powell and DeRozan as three wings who can be really switchy across those positions, and then you have a Bach as a rim protector. Maybe that maybe that ends up being a more um, a better defensive look than, than I'm anticipating. I mean, if you if you they want to get super weird, you're talking about getting weird before. Like Ananobi, just throw that six eight, two hundred thirty two pound frame with an eight foot wingspan at the five, and yeah. let, let's just run. Look, I think honestly that would be on the table at some point, and. If he he's only played in the one preseason game and the intra squad scrimmage and he's looked rusty. Uh, he actually looked like he did some stuff on offense that I don't think anyone was expecting him right away. Like he had three assists in I think like 18 minutes and then also oh, had this this amazing like drive uh, against a corner closeout into a post up and finish with the left. Um, then it was like <laughs> like man I didn't I wasn't aware that this was in the arsenal. Uh, but also like. He's 20 years old, and, and as nice as he might be defensively, a 50-win team is not going to be relying too right. heavily on a 20-year-old for their like key lineups. Um, I do think they could get super funky off the bench like that, though, too. Um, I know we just talked about how there might not be enough minutes for Noguera with, with Pirtle in there, but you could get you could convince me on Siakam or Ananobi or both as kind of the front court in, in those second units. I was amazed at how much, for what Siakam doesn't do on offense— and I, like I appreciate versatility on the offensive end more than anything. I think I was, I, I I'm amazed at how much I like him, and that doesn't mean anything because it's just me. But he, uh, you, I didn't even you said the Raptors might view him as a three four. I I agree with you. I think he's a four five. But the fact that he we've seen enough from him on defense where it's like, well, I guess we can see why they view him as that three four is that that speaks to it, and I, it it comes back to what we've been talking about. There are so many interesting pieces in this front court. Uh, it it's just so hard to decipher because there's that one complete piece just isn't there. Yeah, and that's I mean this is what you kind of accept when you pay at the top and then you go young with the with the bench is that there aren't finished products, there aren't uh, sure things outside of you know their starters and then whichever of Powell or Miles comes off the bench, you could probably include Delon right in there, but even he only has you know a couple hundred NBA minutes, so. Um, this is this is kind of what they've accepted, paying at the top and not being a tax team. And it, a lot of it is, you know, so many of these young guys that they have too, a lot of it is, well, if they can figure out shooting. Like Siakam has improved as a, as a shooter a little bit, uh, enough to where he's pretty comfortable shooting the corner three. Um, 
But like no one's going to respect that until he's hitting it down regularly. Um, and an Obi obviously shooting is a sticking point in his game. Even a guy like Norman Powell, who's uh, pretty, I think most people are pretty high on him as a two-way player. Um, his three-point percentages have been all over the place if you split his his two years into uh, into smaller samples. So um, they're betting they're betting a lot on their player development program. But again, back to what we ta- talked about right off the top, it was kind of necessary if you wanted to pay to keep these guys and not blow way into the tax. And I, I think now that you have enough of these interesting pieces, and we have to talk about Norman Powell, uh, like specifically, but now that you have a bunch of these interesting pieces, and it's Powell and it's Anobi, and you have all these uh, different kinds of talents up front, the goal is to hit on a couple of those. And if someone, you know, you, if Siakam adds that unforeseen element to his game where he becomes a, a half competent corner three point shooter, or if we see that Norman Powell's uh, three point shot finally holds the way everyone. Uh, thought it would if we somehow see that Nagara becomes more consistent like if you hit on one or two of these guys that helps so much and then maybe it clears things up with how you run the rotation but it elevates your ceiling more importantly a, a lot higher yeah and I think oddly because like this team's won between 45 and 56 games each of the last four years and they just re-upped to you know all-star or borderline all-star players to big money it's weird to say but this year is really kind of a, a learning year for them and a development year because they, you know, they've committed to this three-year window, but LeBron still exists at the Eastern Conference, and they need to use this year to figure out which of these young guys, if any of them, they move forward with counting on in the rotation, and you know what spots they need to go out and fortify in the last two years of the window when they might be willing to spend a little more into the tax. So um, it's going to be weird. They're going to win probably in the high 40s of games. But a lot of the talk will be about, you know, maybe not from the team itself, but at least what I'll be looking at is like, okay, what is this setting up for next year? What are we learning about, you know, what the Raptors could be in a hypothetical post-LeBron Eastern Conference? Um, And yeah, a lot of these names that we talked about, I think we'll have at least a better idea of whether they're second unit guys or end of bench fodder by the time the Sears done. And one of the things that could end up helping them a lot just looking at financial flexibility even though they're not projected to have a ton but getting norman powell at the four-year 42 million dollars i think that's a good number with a a very good chance of becoming like a fantastic number and it's weird i when i was doing br's top 100 players i couldn't i wound up leaving norman powell out because i couldn't figure out where to place him and it came down to this for me he's entering his third season but it feels like we've been talking about and waiting on a marquee breakout for five or six years and I'm curious, what do you, we talked about him kind of showing out once the Terrence Ross trade went down. He could, this is going to be the launch board for a breakout. And it wasn't, he was okay in spots, but like he says, three point percentages are all over the place. Do you think that now is this the year? And we can't, we have to stress it's his third season. So, but is this, is now, is this like, is it set up? Do you think that he's going to become this consistent player where it's not, well, he has a ton of, he brings a ton of energy on defense, but maybe he'll be able to hit these catch-and-shoot threes um, with more consistency. Do you see this as being kind of the year for him? Yeah, I think I think it kind of has to be. Like, he's going to play – he's their fifth or sixth player, depending on how you want to line it up uh, in terms of, you know, role and importance. Um, and he – you know, they need him – you look at the perimeter defenders they have. They need him to turn the flashes he's shown into legitimate impact. And, and offensively – you know, if he comes off the bench, they need him to continue to develop as that kind of creator and improve his passing a little bit. Um, but if he's starting, you know, he kind of can be what he is, just knock down some threes and be that tertiary attacker around Lowry and DeRozan if he starts. Um, 
But there, I mean, this is a clear bet, not only in how they've constructed the roster, but in the four-year, $42 million extension they've given him. They believe that he's ready to be, you know, a $10 million player and a functional piece of uh, of this rotation on both ends of the floor. And I, I don't think he's shown that he can't be that. I think most of the signals, you know, he's had some rough patches because he's a young player and um, defense is hard, especially as your role grows from 10 minutes once a week to 18 minutes a game. And, and now he'll have to make that jump to 30 minutes a game. Uh, but I think he's shown a lot more that he can uh, move into this role than that he can't. So um, I think the team's pretty confident. I think Raptors fans who have watched him a lot are probably pretty confident and it might not be, you know, smooth and hundred percent out of the gate, but Powell should be in for uh, in for a pretty good year. Do you know who he reminds me of? I'm curious if you agree. Uh, if we factor in if there's the same potential as this player I'm about to name for a, a playmaking leap as a passer, he sort of just bears a resemblance to a better defensive version of Will Barton to me at times. Yeah, that's not a that's not a bad comp. If he could, uh, you know, hopefully some of the shot selection is uh, is a little less uh, grand, especially in transition. You know, I know Will yeah. Barton's. Well, Will they, Barton's a fan of the the fancy plays in transition, so I don't, uh, Raptors, Norm will probably take those right to the rim. Right, and he they won't ask the Raptors won't ask him to run a ton of pick. Like giving Will Barton that freedom is just asking yeah. for those shots. Yeah, it's not a bad comp. Obviously, uh, if the Raptors could have got Norm Powell on Will Barton's contract, that would have been amazing. God, I'm interested to see what um, Will Barton gets now when you see Josh Richardson and Norm Powell getting four and forty two. Harris gets eighty four million dollars, which I thought was another fine deal. Uh, Will Barton's another contract, just as an added Nuggets tidbit in this podcast. Yeah, and, and like it's interesting too because I mean it kind of speaks to what Powell's decision making process was in signing that deal. In that, you know, as, as we go on, the the restricted free agent market next year is starting to look, um, and, and the unrestricted free agent market. Sorry, there, there aren't a lot of marquee free agents really um, to be soaking up what's also not going to be a lot of money. So I think Powell and Richardson and guys like that jumped on the deals because the potential RFA market looks scary next year. Um, but there's still going to be a little bit of money. And a guy like Will Barton, who's hitting it at the right time, um, you know, that might be a, he might end up being the one getting the Alan Crabb or Tim Hardaway uh, in 2018. <laughs> yeah, that the, the I supported the Alan Crabb deal at the time because I think everyone misread the market. But the Tim Hardaway deal was a 2016 deal given out in 2017, a, a couple weeks or days after it had been established that, oh, there's going to be a market crunch for this year and probably next year as well that was just egregious and I, I agree with everything you said they probably those guys they wanted to hedge against that risk and for restricted free agents especially it's tough because teams don't want to tie up cap space for I think it's 48 hours now or whatever it is in players that they ultimately know they're probably not going to get yeah exactly it's uh so I mean the Raptors it's a it's a smart play to bet on Powell he's a guy that they've been high on and love for his impact for the culture he's kind of like a leader for the for that young second and third group that they have there and like you know, a couple guys have told me stories of working out with him in the offseason or like trying to beat him into the gym and stuff like that. So he's, uh, you know, he's a guy that they like to have around for more than just what he can bring on the court, too. And he's, he's a pretty good spiritual fit with uh, with what the Raptors are and have become and are building. All right. One, I know you have to go. So one really quick question before I just ask you for your projection is who's going to play more minutes this year? Bruno Caboclo or Anoboy for the Nuggets in real in real time? Sorry, who, time. Bruno or who? Bruno or uh, Anoboy. OG. Oh, uh, Ananobi. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, Ananobi for sure. All right. I like it's uh, like Br- Bruno. They're going to see the experiment through, but Ananobi, they invested in pretty heavily and are pretty high. They keep talking about it, like they keep calling him a, a top 10 pick that they got at number 23. Um, and, you know, I understood the Bruno experiment and I still 
I'm cool with seeing it out for the fourth year. And he probably needs NBA minutes at some point, but Ananobi is just going to be able to give them stuff right away that, that Bruno's not there yet with. I told you I'd screw up someone's pronunciation really bad, and, <laughs> and uh, OG had me twisting at the end there. So what do you see? Um, where do you see the Raptors ultimately landing within the East in, in terms of, let's say, like record projection and then just playoff seeding? Yeah, I've bounced between 48 and 49 wins for them, which um, I'm sure some Raptor fans might think is low. I think it's right around the Vegas projection or what the Vegas projection opened at. Um, but I think with this much youth and not a lot of proven depth, you know, there's a little bit of risk that it takes a little bit of time for them to figure it out. That if Lowry or DeRozan were to miss time, that maybe there's some stumbling. Um, but in their favor, after a six-game West Coast trip early in the year, like over the last 73 games, they have the easiest schedule by quality of opposition and by travel miles. Um, so they're going to be in a pretty good spot to at least build slowly and kind of peak later in the year. So I don't know if 48-49, I think they'll probably have them third in the East. I don't have my sheet in front of me when I went through it the other day. Uh, but I think they'll be right there with the Wizards jockeying for for third and fourth. And, and realistically, Cleveland might even slide into that high 40s, low 50s mud because you know they're not going to care about the, the regular season at all. I also think the Celtics could have danger of falling there too. I think they've been overrated. So the Raptors... Look, I've been tr- I've been trying to slander the Celtics less and less as the preseason's gone on because there's been a lot of Celtics talk and you know I don't know if everyone else realizes this but Raptor fans love giving it to the Celtics. Um, I'm more I think it would be funnier as someone who who wants the Celtics to not do particularly well for no reason other than spite. Uh, I think it'd be way funnier if they win like 60 games and then get bounced in the playoffs I, than if they struggle in the regular season. Um, I, I don't, yeah, maybe it would be funnier, but um, I'll continue slandering them on your behalf then because yes, I, I, I appreciate well on them relative to everybody else. <laughs> um, we want to thank Blake for jumping on this. This was fantastic. Uh, you were very generous with your time. We appreciate that. If you want to talk to him about his Raptors takes, please follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, very good writer, at Blake Murphy, O-D-C, uh, spelled exactly like it sounds. If you want to follow me, I'm at Dan Favale. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy Bailey, at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled as it sounds again. Please follow the NBA Math official account at NBA underscore math. You can find Hardwood Knox at Hardwood Knox, again, spelled like it sounds. Since Andy's not here, there will be no shout-out to you-know-who. Until next time. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. (laughs) 
In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.